how would you like me to introduce you? Just, uh, just Eric Rudd. Veterans or historian? Or? Just or records, I don't know, let's see, let's kind of brainstorm here. Just uh, records oral, veterans oral history, spends one week at Oshkosh for timeless voices of aviation, recording general aviation and military history. And then one of the things I'm starting to do is I'm now scheduled once a month with the Franklin County Veterans Services Commission to record veterans that come into their offices for assistance. I live in Dublin, which is home of Wendy's. <laughs> which is the northwest suburb. That's where the Memorial Tournament is. Memorial Tournament and Wendy's are probably Dublin's claim to fame and one of the largest Irish festivals in the country. So should I say like uh, the Columbus area or? Yeah, the Columbus metropolitan area. That's that's probably the, the way to phrase it. Write it down. <laughs> we have time. I used to do these sort of canned intros and stuff and I got away from it and I just... I forget, people know what they're listening to, and it's uh, it's in the show notes. So I just sort of like, I like to take these like out clips. I know, I love those. That's kind of like my thing now, yeah, I guess. Yeah. You know, they're they're funny. People like them. Yeah. Welcome to Veteran Voices, the oral history podcast. This is where we feature conversations with those who tell veteran stories as I like to say, in creative and interesting ways. And joining us today is Eric Rood, who's from the greater Columbus metropolitan area in Ohio. Boy, you, you took a trip to be over here with us today, didn't you? Uh, it's the best way to record. I don't like having interruptions on Skype. Oh, but we could have, we could have been home in our pajamas, uh, having a cup of tea or coffee or a beer, and done this with technology, huh? <laughs> So Eric has been uh, been doing veterans oral history since 2006. So you started with Timeless Voices of Aviation, which is hosted by the Experimental Aircraft Association. That's how you got into doing this work, right? Yes, I my initial foray was with my father's veterans reunions, and I did a presentation on the history of the unit when they were recalled for Korea, and that was just a, a straight up talk. And after the end of that program, the fellow who was in charge of the reunions came up to me and says, well, what are you going to do next year? So I was, I said, well, let me think about it. And at that time, the oral histories were starting to become more popular. So I actually spent a year just researching equipment. And then I went up and I sat down and interviewed three of the fellows who were from the Akron area, and I'd never done it, didn't know what I was doing. Really? I, just like that? You just jumped into it? And I just let them talk. Well, I quickly learned that unless you have questions to prompt them, you're not going to get a very good story. You can, you can get a few of their memories, but not a good picture of what they actually went through. And that was a week before Oshkosh. So I went to Oshkosh, and I was walking around, and I saw this tent, the sign that said, Timeless Voices, Tell Your Story. Well, let's explain f for those who don't know what Oshkosh is. Oshkosh is the uh, Experimental Aircraft Association Annual Convention. It's now called AirVenture, but for those of us who've been around since the 70s and 80s, we still call it Oshkosh. So you're an aircraft kind of guy. You like aviation. I've been flying since 1981. I've been I've had my pilot's license. My father was a pilot, so I grew up with it. Mm. So your work with veterans, I mean, do you focus on aviation 
military guys and women? The EA Timeless Voices program is called Timeless Voices of Aviation. So it deals both with uh, civilian aviation and military aviation and government aviation, actually any of the, uh, any form of, of aviation. We get veterans, we get people who build their own airplanes, we get people who design airplanes, we get aircraft manufacturers, it, it runs the whole gamut. Hmm. Let's go back to jumping into those interviews. What was that like? It was a learning process. Um, as I said, it wasn't until uh, I got home and I started to edit it that I realized, yeah, this isn't quite what I need. I need some help. <laughs> oh, man, I really screwed this up. No, you didn't screw anything up, did you? No, you, you, you still get the stories, and that's the important thing. But when I went up to Oshkosh and I, I uh, met Zach Boffman, who managed their Timeless Voices program, he goes, well, he says, I got an interview coming up. He says, why don't you come sit in on it? So I went up, and very first interview was Dick Cole, who was Jimmy Doolittle's co-pilot on the, on the Tokyo Raid. Whoa, what a VIP. Wow. And at the end of that interview, after Dick Cole had left, Zach turns to me and goes, so, you ready to do one on your own? <laughs> and that's where I learned they have a script, and it was pretty much taken from the uh, Library of Congress Veterans Oral History Program. It, it gives you basic questions to ask. And what I learned is that after you do, oh, maybe half a dozen or so interviews, you kind of get the rhythm and you fall back onto those questions when you have an interviewee that doesn't expound on, their, on your questions, so to speak. I start out with, with a few basic questions about the, the standard say and spell your name, when and where were you born, what were your parents' names, what did your parents do, did you have any siblings? What kind of things did you do when you were a child? What kind of student were you in high school? What activities did you do in high school? And the last one is, what did you do after high school? And then after that question, it goes wherever it goes. And you, one of the things you do is you take notes if you need to come back and get more information on something. If, and you have people that some people can talk, and you just let them talk. I've had some interviewees that they'll go on for half an hour or an hour and you're just sitting there waiting until they say next question yeah yeah well you never know you know how that uh, that unfolds do you mostly work by yourself solo it's kind of 50 50 we had you know it, it, there's there's one older gentleman named mel smith who was a broadcast executive and he'll sit in on some of them and it's interesting when you, when you sit in with, with other people because they bring another dynamic to the interview. They have a different view, so to speak, so they'll ask different questions than what you would ask. And you go, wow, that was pretty good. Most of it, it all depends on the year. There's, there's basically, I think, three of us that are doing interviews. Um, and that's uh, Chris Henry, who's a Pittsburgh boy. He is now uh, the program manager. He's up there at Oshkosh. And he'll do interviews that, for certain people that he, want, that he brings in. And then the rest of us are assigned different ones, different times. Um, we have the, the tent out on the field where people walking by, we can pull them in. And then there's also the different speakers that give presentations. Uh, and then there's a, what they call a technology building that up-and-coming aviation technology, uh, the one fellow uh, that handles those in particular will go down there and 
he'll he'll ask people to do interviews and to talk about what what they're presenting. I do a lot of the military history things, uh, and I read, especially World War II, and I've read Vietnam, so I can ask pertinent questions. I tend to do what I call long form, which is usually a couple hours. Wow, that's that's some long interviewing there. <laughs> um, the fellow I did in Florida, Craig White, we've got three and a half hours with him that's edited. I met him on Facebook through the F-105 group. He flew F-105s uh, in, over North Vietnam. I happened to be going down there. I said, well, can we do an interview? He said, sure. And when I got down there, he goes, you know, nobody's heard this in 50 years. We do these interviews a lot for their family in addition to recording the history. So I got a lot of good information out of him. Um, the, one, of the, one of the ones more recently was... Uh, a year ago, December, Bob Arn flew the hump. Uh, that was just that was just part of it. But uh, again, I've got three and a half hours with him, and I went back and I did another hour and a half of audio. Uh, so five hours. Um, the two I did this past week, one was two hours and ten minutes. The other was two hours and twenty minutes. They were uh, B-17 crew members. Um, the one fellow was on the first U.S. Uh, 8th Air Force shuttle mission to Russia. He was the flight engineer. And then the second one was a ball turret gunner, B-17. His last mission was on March 28th, 1945. Their aircraft was damaged, and their target was, uh, was a rail yard south of Berlin, they continued on. He asked his navigator, it's like, or his, the pilot asked the navigator, Get, find me a field. The Russians were 76 miles to the east. The Americans were 76 miles to the west. So that was the America, where the Americans were. They had to fly through more German anti-aircraft and, and run the risk of fighters. So they went on and they landed at a field in Poland. And from Poland, it took them... And their crew stayed together. It, it took them a month to get back to their base in England. When they got back to their base, they went on R&R for a week. And at the end of that week was when, war, when the war in Europe was over. Wow. <laughs> when you do these interviews, do you pretty much have a sense of how they're going to go, what the topics are? Uh, obviously, you have those questions you mentioned earlier, but I mean, do you have a real sense of how it's going to go? Actually, I don't know the people, and I don't know where it's going to go. Oh, so these you're kind of going coming to these cold. That's correct. Wow. Well, that makes it interesting. I don't get any paperwork filled out until I go there. Um, it's it's one of those things where I, either I've met them or someone else has, has met them and given me their contact information. And I'll call them and say, can I get an interview? And we set up a date and time. And while, they're, while I'm setting up, they're filling out the paperwork. So I just kind of glimpse through it before we get started. Is the real magic in the preparedness of the questions and the military knowledge that you have? Or is it in just being a, another human being in a conversation? It helps to know some of the history because you can ask those pertinent questions and ask for specific details. But at the same time, as, as I tell them at the beginning of the interview to try and get them to relax, it's, it's just a conversation with two people. And uh, that's, that's just kind of how it goes. It, they, they're tense at the beginning. 
and after you get going for a few minutes, they they relax and it just it's it's more comfortable for them. Right. Yeah. Once people find that sort of groove and they realize it is just a conversation. Yeah, things sort of uh, unfold pretty easily. I often find that being inquisitive as an interviewer really goes a long way. It's like, you know, if someone says something about something you don't understand, you never heard of before, you know, say, well, well, tell me about that, or I don't understand. And boy, that just sort of takes you into a different place. Do you do that a lot? Are you inquisitive in your conversations? Yes. That's one of those things where they may mention something and you just let them go on, but you make a note so that you can come back to it and and you ask them about it and tell me more about this. So you do these very long interviews. What do you do with them at the end? I mean, that's a lot of content, three hours worth, two hours worth. I keep a copy. I give the veteran a copy, and then a copy goes to Oshkosh. They decide which ones they put up on their Timeless Voices website. So it's it's at least archived. And what is that website? Well, there's the timelessvoicesofaviation.org which is the one sponsored by Oshkosh. And then I have a Vimeo website that I post to, and then I share that link with the veterans so that they can share it with their friends and family. Is that not public or is that? No, it's not a public. I see. But if someone goes to timelessvoicesofaviation.org, they can see some of your work there? Yes, but you won't know that it's me because the way they edit them, everything the interviewer says is edited out, and it's more the veteran just telling a narrative story. There are show notes saying, uh, production of Eric Rude. <laughs> They're working on a, on a very tight budget. They've had one fellow that's, that's donated to the program to keep it going, and they've been able to stretch it out over the years. Well, I'd like to see you get credit for all that good work that you're doing. I mean, that, that's kind of important, I think. Or at least we know who to, who to blame if it goes south. <laughs> Look at the color on that video. That's just off. <laughs> well, that was one of those things where we were lucky. Uh, we had a fellow named Mike DiMaselli who just uh, passed away last fall. And he was a professional videographer. He'd bring his equipment in and, and set up the equipment. And he was a great mentor to me. Mike knew I was interested and he took the time to teach me all the little technique things, how to set up lighting, how to set up sound, how to position the camera so that your, your interviewee look good. Well, those things are so important. I mean, this is a technical field. It really is. This isn't Hooterville kind of stuff. I mean, we, we've got a lot of expensive gear and a lot of buttons and, and knobs and things that have to be in the right place or else you know, nothing works right. Having somebody to mentor and show you these things, uh, boy, that just makes all the difference in the world. One of the reasons for this podcast is to sort of really get into these things and talk about these things that matter to us as interviewers and as uh, veterans or historians, because th these aren't the things that you see in the videos. I mean, you see the, you see the consequence of our skill set, but what you never see is how we get there. And all the work that goes into this stuff. So that's I love. Uh, thank you for sharing that because that's what makes this happen. This kind of work. I mean, look, you're over here today, and you are helping me with some podcast recording here today, and I'm very appreciative of that. And you know, we're talking about gear, and we're experimenting with things, and we're trying to solve problems that we have. This is like sausage making. You know, <laughs> it's a messy damn process. But at the end, though, is good. You know, you don't see all that mess at the end. But let me ask you about where the rubber meets the road, and that's getting on set with all your gear and you lined up the time and the people coming and stuff like that. 
what has gone off the rails for you? I'm trying to think of, an, of a time. Oh, probably one of my first interviews. I didn't have a chair set far enough away from the wall. So you see shadows, and you, I didn't think about the sun coming through the window. So you, you, you see the sun creeping across this guy's face and into his eyes. And um, that was another one of my three-hour interviews. So <laughs> the sun moves over three hours of time. So yeah. those, those were early on. You learn from your mistakes, and you try not to repeat them. Yeah, and that's very important. You know, jumping in, doing it. But being analytical and critical of your own work, so you're looking at something, you say, oh, those shadows on the wall, how'd that happen? You know, and how not to do that, right? That's, that's what you glean from it, how not to make that mistake again. I've had interviews where I'm going along and it just is great. 20 minutes in, I look over, I forgot to hit record. Oh. I've missed a couple shots <laughs> on, on some other things because of that. It's, it's just, oh, look at that. Turn the camera and yeah, you forget to hit the record button. Yeah, had an opportunity a couple of years ago at one of the Doolittle Raiders, the Texas Plains of Fame, flew up from Texas, and they brought their Japanese Zero with them. And the Zero was landing and coming towards me, and he's running out of runway, and he ground looped it. And I thought, oh great, I got this. And I get home and I look for it, and it's like, oh, I didn't hit record. Oh, there you go. <laughs> You know, I always say, uh, especially with the younger people I work with, the younger media producers, we don't get second shots at this stuff. You just do not get second chances. And if you do, ugh, what you have to go through, calling somebody up or set, setting up a new uh, you know, date for recording, whatever, because you blew the recording, ugh, you just hate to go there. So you better try to get that stuff right, you know, the first time, making sure all the knobs and the buttons are in the right place and everything works and showing up ahead of time, you know, to make sure you get set up because you will never have enough time to set up, never, you know, that sort of thing. But this leads me into something that I wanted to ask you about in terms of never getting a shot again. And that's with our World War II veterans who are just so older and frailer by the, it seems like by the week. And we're losing so many. What are your thoughts on the urgency to get these stories recorded? In the past, I haven't been as aggressive as I should have been to get stories. So I've missed some. Now I'm, I'm definitely getting more aggressive with it as, as time goes by. And, and from the time I meet them to the time I try and schedule an interview, uh, try and get them within a month. Because when they go, they go quick. So you're prioritizing World War II vets yes. you come across. Yeah. Boy, I think all of us need to do that. And this is a topic that you and I have talked about in other places. We are losing those you know, with whom we've personally interacted. What's that like for you? I don't have a lot of emotional attachment to the people I've met, and that's uh, just my personality. Um, you know, I find out about it, and it's like, well, I'm glad I got their story, and their families are happy they have it. I don't know. It's a that's an interesting question um, because I usually don't find out that they've passed until after some time has passed. You know, I've, I've got one interview I did maybe two years ago last month. Mike Haddock. He is a hundred and a half. His one hundred and first birthday will be coming up in September. He was a B twenty five radio operator in the South Pacific. He saw the mushroom cloud. Uh, the Nagasaki blast. They were seven. Their crew was 70 miles away, coming back from their mission. 
And one of the things I'm trying to do is there's a Doolittle, another Doolittle Raider reunion coming up this April. Uh, they have 16 B-17s committed for a flyover. They will be arriving and staging out of Urbana, Ohio, Grimes Airport the weekend of the uh, 16th and 17th. And I'm trying to wangle him a ride on one of the B-25s. So that's, that's kind of the closest I have, and he's, he's local in Columbus. Unless we personally know people... I mean, this is the, kind of like a job, right? You know, people come in, we meet them, meet and greet, we sit down, we do the interviews. But boy, after you spend some time hearing these stories, uh, I'm speaking personally, boy, you can get close to somebody, I think. It's kind of a weird thing, but you can get close to somebody by hearing their story. And when I hear that they pass, it just saddens me because I know some details of, of that person. And I appreciate that they shared those stories. So their passing is just sort of like, a, you know, I just really lament on one hand, but also celebrate that I had a chance to hear their stories. And maybe you've had this experience too. We've had these, um, you have had family members come back to us and say, oh, you know, grandpa died and thank you for preserving his story. And uh, that's a pretty good feeling, but it's still, still sad. It's bittersweet, you know. It's not like they're family and I haven't known them a long time. So it's, there's, it's, it's not really emotional, but for instance, uh, if it's someone local, and I know when their funeral is, I'll, I'll usually go to the viewing and try and attend a graveside ceremony for the veterans. You know, we often talk about losing the World War II veterans, you know, and the outside estimate is uh, by 2036, there will be no more World War II veterans left alive on the planet. Now, you, you know, that's really not that far off. And, you know, the presumption is that someone will be about 106, 108 years old, something like that, you know, totally feasible this day and age prior to that. For many years, I think, starting starting now, as I see it, it's not just people will die, it's that they will become more and more infirm, memory, cognitive issues, impairments, things like that, that will be barriers to getting these stories. Have you dealt with World War II vets or elderly vets that had such memory issues or infirmities that really got in the way or, or uh, sort of jeopardized the interview? There was one fellow I interviewed, 97 years old. It was very interesting because... He dated back to the early days of aviation. He grew up on a farm, and all these barnstormers used to land in their field and give rides, and his, his parents would put him up. So he got to know all these famous people from back in the 20s and the, and the 30s in the barnstorming age. And he went on to, to learn to fly, and then in World War II, he was in the Navy, and he was a naval aviator. But he'd done photography before he went in the Navy. They ended up giving him an airplane and cameras, and would send him out to do photographic recon. And the course of the interview, I would ask him a question, and he would start out answering it. And then he would move off onto something else. And he'd talk on that for a couple minutes. And then he'd come right back to the question that I'd ask. They did this the whole interview for Clancy Hess was his name. Did this for about an hour. I figured that's about how long the interview was. And he, like as I said, in 97. And uh, that was a very, very interesting interview because... You start to get worried when they start to go off and away, but then when he brought it back, it's like, oh, wow, that was incredible how he did that. Well, it's funny how the mind works. And then you get, you get others that they're very difficult interviews. You try to get your interviewee to answer in a couple sentences and give you some information, and you tell them at the beginning of the interview, try and rephrase my question in, your, in the first 
sentence of your answer so that people know what we're talking about. And they still go with yes and no answers. And you have to figure out how to word the question to get them to talk long. The open-ended question, yeah, that's a, what a skill that is. To, for, oh, it's a primary skill, really, for interviewer to develop. I'm not a fast thinker on things like that, so there's usually some dead air when I, while I try and think about, okay, how am I going to ask this question, and how am I going to get him to say this? Well, it's a good thing these aren't live, right? <laughs> I say that all, all the time. Oh, I'd be... I never make it as a radio DJ because I'm just terrible at this stuff. And so those of you listening at home, you will never hear all the mistakes that uh, get made, unless I put them in the blooper section, which uh, will probably end up there. <laughs> so Eric, we are almost out of time, but I always like to ask my guests to share some advice with those at home. You know, they have a parent, grandparent who served and they, they want to preserve the story. What advice would you give somebody who really wants to do this, but really maybe not know how or... Don't put it off. Don't put it off. Yes. Use whatever you have available. Probably the easiest thing to do right now is most people have smartphones. You can either record audio or audio and video with them. Um, just sit down at a table, find someplace quiet where there's not a lot of background noise, and start asking questions. Some of the questions you want to avoid that a lot of people ask, or did you kill anyone? Yeah, well, they're in the military. Some, that comes with the territory for some, some of the occupations. But Which is a terrific question, by the way, that you have to ask it in the right way at the right time. But that is a powerful question. But, you know, just what was life like? Think about how old you, are, you were or how old they were and what people today do now and ask them what they did then when they were that age. Having a conversation, right? That's how we started this conversation, really. The importance of just a conversation that, you know, we'll get the information. You'll get there in time, recording with your uh, smartphone or iPad and, you know, some technology like that. If you have, uh, especially post-9-11 veterans, one of the best questions I learned from Nick Grimes is, what music did you listen to and how did you take it with you? If you have a post-9-11 veteran, that is one of the greatest questions that, that you will get a, a very good answer to. Music becomes the soundtrack of our lives. And all our lives are different. Whether you were raised in the 80s, uh, 70s, you know, 60s, whatever, those soundtracks are very, very important. There was an F-14 pilot I interviewed last year. I asked him that question. And this was after the interview was over, and he said, well, we had a Sony Discman, and the avionics guys wired a pigtail into it. And he said, when we'd get up in the air when we were cruising before we got into the battle area, we had what was called a lieutenant's-only channel. And he said, you could always tell who was tuned in when you looked around when you were flying in, in formation by whose head was bobbing. <laughs> How neat. I used to work on uh, F-14 intercom systems, actually. No one ever asked me to wire in a Sony disc, disc uh, what is it? A disc Discman. Discman. Oh, yeah, boy, that's, that's back in the day. <laughs> and see, that's, that's another thing, because you can, you can ask that question of different generations, and you, you see the advances in technology. How neat. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and sharing some of that great wisdom and also sharing you know, some of your experiences, the ins and outs of the recording veterans oral history. Fascinating stuff. And, you know, it's uh, people like you, Eric, I think, that are doing us a great service, preserving these stories and voices for future generations. So I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing in the greater Columbus area 
at Oshkosh, focusing on aviation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. I'm Kevin Farkas. Thank you for joining us. And remember, every veteran has a story to tell, and we are listening. See you next time on Veteran Voices, the Oral History Podcast. Hey, I forgot to hit record.